0: This is the Water Into Wine podcast. Over the coming weeks, I'm going to be describing a journey that I've been on over the past 12 years, telling you about how I started off as a non-believer in the spirit world and ended up as a believer. I'll give you all the clues you need to go and verify this for yourself and go and research for yourself as well, because I don't expect anybody to listen to what I say and just believe it. But I do want you to go and look for yourself because you'll find everything's there. Now, you can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube and SoundCloud. Just search for Water Into Wine podcast. Welcome to the Water Into Wine podcast. This is number, I think it's number seven. Um, Last week we discussed witches and the witch trials and Matthew Hopkins, who was the witch finder general for Essex, where I actually live, and why witches were being stamped out, why they were being wiped off the face of the earth. And I came to the conclusion quite quick because of a brew that I found called Datura that it was because of their consciousness. They were enlightened people. They knew what they shouldn't know. So the church, via a papal bull inside the Malleus Maleficarum, decided to wipe out witches off the face of the earth, stop them. And they, they actually tortured them to find out who else they studied this witchcraft and, um, with and made this brew with. So this week I want to talk to you about a few names that you think you know what it means when it doesn't actually mean what you think it means, if, <laughs> if that makes any sense. For example, Lucifer. You can research all this, it's, it's, it's quite factual. It was around the end of the Middle Ages that the name Lucifer was actually demonised by the church. Now Lucifer is actually from the Latin Lassum fair, meaning shining, bright or clear and as the name is more commonly translated, the Light Bearer. Now, the name refers to the dawn appearance of the planet Venus, or day star, or morning star, as it's well known, uh, which was worshipped amongst the pagans because its appearance announces the, the arrival of daylight. Venus, which is in fact a planet, not a star, is a very persistent pagan symbol. Over and over again, this keeps coming back. And as we've found out, it has cropped up throughout history, for example, it seems to form part of the intellectual background to da Vinci's concept of his Vitruvian man, because he's standing in the shape of a pentacle, uh, which is tied, as we discussed in a previous podcast, is tied to Venus. Now, the New Testament doesn't name the demon Lucifer directly, but it does refer to what it calls the fallen angels. For example, in Isaiah fourteen twelve to 15 How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far north. I will ascend above the heights of the cloud. I will make myself like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the depth of the pit. Since the New Testament, the name Lucifer has been used as the name for the devil, whereas originally it wasn't satanic in the slightest. The Christian devil has horns. The pre-Christian gods also had horns. Can you see the link there? Can you see what they're trying to demonize again, the same as they did with the witches? This is an example of stigma which is the process by which a previous truth is turned on its head and made a travesty to signify evil, whereas before it represented good. Now, the pagans would draw a pentacle, the sign for Venus, as we've just discussed, on the ground to use during their rituals. And because of this, this basic Mother Earth sign was demonized. But the original sign had nothing to do with demons or any demonic meaning at all. Now, there seems to be a A pattern of the early church appropriating symbols from other religions, using them without crediting their sources or else demonizing them. What is it hiding? Why was the church uncomfortable with its borrowings from other religions? Is it again because its tenets rest on the uncomfortable ambiguity of the Bible's origins, do you think? Now the word paganism, let's take that for example, it comes from the Latin word paganus, meaning country dweller. So if you live in the country, you were paganus or a pagan, because you lived amongst all the trees, and the grass, and the flowers, and you understood nature because you're in the thick of it better than anybody else out of the countryside. When used in a religious sense, paganism identified something that predated Christianity by thousands of years, but it was more correctly known as shamanism. Now, a shaman was the spiritual leader of of a tribe and was someone who was considered an intermediary between the um, temporal and the divine, interacting with both. Indian tribes in America had them. African people still do have them. The Scandinavians have left us one of their own in, in the practices of Father Christmas. What could be more Christian than Christmas, eh? Well, it turns out after a bit of digging, that Father Christmas is at least 30,000 years old, not 2,000 or 100 years old, depending upon which version of the Christian model you prefer. The winter solstice, which is around about the 21st of December, is a much older religious occasion than just the birth of the baby Jesus. In ancient times, and even today in the Amazon, the shaman take hallucinogenic drugs made up of flowers and roots, etc., and leaves, to relax the conscious mind so that the subconscious mind will perceive the things that its more routine sister blocks out exactly the same way with witchcraft. A study of ancient cave paintings around the world reveals that these shamanistic civilizations have pictures of men with the head of an animal in common with one another. Now, they are what's called, I've mentioned this in one of the previous podcasts, they're called Therianthropes. Anubis was the jackal-headed Egyptian god, for example. Um, He had the head of a dog. Uh, Pan as well. I think Pan's Greek. He was a Greek god. He had the legs of a horse and the head of a human. Now, is it possible that the Templars and the Egyptians could have been taking the hallucinogenic drugs we talk about? Is that where the idea of the Baphomets and the Egyptian gods came from? Perhaps that would explain why there were so many other pagan or Egyptian links in the Baphomet. There's also a strong link in the different civilizations' legends about what they were seeing when they were in this drug-induced state. Now, I understand I'm hitting you with a lot of knowledge here that you possibly have never heard before, but is this beginning to sound plausible to you? All the drugs do what I suggest they do, and I don't, at this point, I don't suggest anybody ever take any of these shamanistic aids or drugs. Don't do it. It's... They are lethal. These things are lethal, especially Datura. They're lethal. Do not take them under any circumstances. Now, when you research these drugs, um, and most researchers agree with this, there's a certain time after you've taken the the drug where you're violently sick. I mean really violently, violently sick because your body is trying to get rid of the drug. Once the body stops resisting the drugs take effect and the users report a sense of being welcomed by the sacred feminine mother nature herself now it doesn't matter how far apart these primitive uh, civilizations i don't like using the word primitive because it's it's almost an insult but how far apart these, these civilizations were from one another nor if they could possibly have been connected in any way the underlying science is what makes the experiences identical The quantity and combination of drugs used to propel the shaman into this visionary state were very nearly deadly. Under no circumstances you could try this. But what these shamans were having is what is often termed an out-of-body experience. This is whereby one's spirit leaves the body and travels to another place, or as in the shaman's case, to another dimension, or what we would call the spirit world. Now there's a part of the body that produces a drug very similar, and some say it's exactly the same as a drug that produces this state. It's the pineal gland. Some people say this is the seat of uh, a drug called DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is a very, very strange drug. It gives you all these experiences. It's situated, the pineal gland is situated in the centre of the brain's mass. Now, this gland is a reddish grey colour and it's shaped like a very small pine cone, which is where it gets its name from. It's about the size of a grain of rice and it's got a very high blood flow as well. Now, throughout history, pagans have revered the evergreen tree because it represents eternal life to them, and the symbol they use for this is, curiously enough, the pine cone because it's the fruit of the evergreen. It's always been a very powerful pagan symbol of the next life, but What is perhaps more surprising is it's also very commonly used in church architecture. A staff with a pine cone on it is also a symbol that represents the Egyptian god Osiris, the solar god of the afterlife and the dead. Osiris was the husband and brother of Isis and the father of Horus. He was known as the ram god and he carried the crook and flail, familiar to shepherds everywhere. Jesus is commonly depicted as a shepherd in religious art, and the Templars worship the severed head of a ram. Do you think this is just coincidence? Because I don't think it is. The Pope also carries a crook, as did Osiris. I also mentioned that the pine cone was a commonly used symbol in church architecture. The symbol is so commonly used by the Catholic Church that even the crucifix staff called the bent cross, carried by the Pope, has one on it. In front of me right now, you'll you'd have to um, you have to Google this. Uh, Google pine cone in, in uh, Vatican Square. I've got the picture directly in front of me, and this this is a 15 foot concrete pine cone that stands very proudly in Vatican Square. Square directly in front of an Egyptian sarcophagus. If you've ever been there, you'll know that it seems really out of place. So there must be a very good reason that they've put it there, don't you think? The pineal gland is also referred to as the third eye. Now when excited, the pineal gland introduces the chemical melatonin into the bloodstream. Melatonin affects our sleep and waking patterns. It is in its own turn affected by light patterns, so during the day little if any melatonin is produced, but at night the gland is stimulated so it produces a lot more. Now the brain controls the levels of melatonin based on the intensity of light entering our eyes. The less light, the more melatonin released, and the more light, the less melatonin is released. It gives you a euphoric, almost spiritual feel, and also induces us to have dreams. Now, drug-taking has been around for thousands and thousands of years. The ancient Egyptians used to love their altered states of consciousness. There's hieroglyphs that show the Egyptians inhaling the lotus flower. It's called the Egyptian Lotus, I'll try the, the Latin name for you, Nymphia caruli, the blue water lily of the Nile, or lotus flower, and the papyrus flower as well. Now the lily is also affected by daylight, except the opposite way round to the pineal gland. It opens by day and closes by night. The Egyptians carved it into as many temples as they could and some pictures, um, like quite a few that you'll find on the internet, show people being offered the lily at social gatherings, as it was used for both ritualistic and recreational use. They actually used to smell it. The Egyptians saw the lily open up each morning, so to them it represented sunrise, and as it closed each night, it also represented darkness. It therefore symbolized the rising and setting sun, and because of this, the sun god and the story of creation itself. Now, the strange thing about this lily, when soaked in wine, the chemicals in the lily changed to become a shamanistic aid, helping the, the um, person taking it to interact with a spiritual world. In 1998, two British volunteers were given to drink the essence of 19 lilies that had been soaked in wine for some days. Now, the, they experienced a definite high. The effects were very similar in some ways to MDMA, what we know as ecstasy. MDMA, of course, acts as an exciter to the pineal gland and induces it to produce melatonin. So could the Egyptians have been taking drugs to relax the conscious mind in order to reach the spirit world? That was the conclusion I come to. Now, it would seem that taking drugs was part and parcel of the pre-Christian religious experience. Could this be why herbalists who lived at the bottom of every village suddenly fell under suspicion in the 15th to 17th centuries? Witches. Were they burned for reinvoking the church's own ambiguous relationship to ecstatic visions and godly messages? It wasn't only that drug taking was frowned upon because it may have recalled a pre Christian past, taking drugs also gave the takers a shamanistic status that directly challenged the current ecclesiastical authorities. Drug induced states are regarded as a threat to the social order too, as was evidenced in the Summer of Love in 1967 and the rave scene of the latter 1980s and early 1990s. There's another side to this demonizing of drugs. If taking the drug can confer a religious or mystical experience of great intensity and sometimes objective insight or foresight into certain future events that affect us all, then it's not something that could be controlled or regulated by the state or by religious authorities. It's anarchy and cannot be tolerated. Taking drugs is not the only route that shaman used to use to reach their subconscious mind rhythmic drumming and meditation also helped the shaman to contact their spiritual side now if you think back to most of the cowboy films back in the 70s and the 80s if you can remember back that far they always used to show the red indians with the pipe of peace dancing with drums around the fire hey hey, yeah hey, hey, yeah hey! do you remember that They were going into an altered state of consciousness. That's what that is all about. Now, the Native Americans would combine the three, taking the drugs, meditating, and dancing around a campfire to contact these spirits of their forefathers. Christians tend to regard these observances as sinful, primitive, or unenlightened. But are they actually? When you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find that, um, or I found, that Egyptian pharaohs and Egyptian kings there's a big difference between a king and a pharaoh all pharaohs were kings but not all kings were pharaohs and the difference was a ritual of the twice-born now we're going to discuss this in future podcasts I won't tell you too much about this it's called the ritual of the twice-born where these drugs were taken to produce this out-of-body experience and then when the came when the king came back he was called the pharaoh uh, the word pharaoh actually means the great house, and it was originally a term for uh, what the name of the Great Pyramid of Giza was called, the great house. They were also given the title, the twice-born ones, which you won't find very easily at all. You have to do some real digging to find out all pharaohs were the twice-born. Because they were born the once, then they had an out-of-body experience, and came back into their body, which means they were born again, the twice-born ones. I'll be telling you in future podcasts why they used to fish during mummification the the pharaoh's brains out via their nose without damaging their body. Uh, They they used to use use a hook and pull their brains out. And the whole mummification thing as well, I'll I'll describe that in in quite some detail. But for now, we're going to leave this Next week, I'm going to tell you more about the Great Pyramid, even the Shrine of Tutankhamun, which is not his real name. We're going to discuss this in great great detail, to be honest with you. And also, I'm going to tell you where you can go and look to find a lot of evidence that I'm giving you. It's a a Bible, what's called a Bible, that's actually older than the Bible we use, the Christian Bible. It's online online. Somebody's put it online, so I'll, I'll, I'll even give you the web address. So I hope you've enjoyed the podcast this week, and um, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you again the same time next week.